some of us find ourselves on center stage, making our living by releasing the trumpet's golden tones into the air, captivating audiences worldwide. Others among us may be more prone to engage in spirited discussions about its intricacies, its legendary players, and the unforgettable moments that have shaped its journey. But no matter our background or ability, Trumpet Dynamics is our harmonious sanctuary, a podcast that tells the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. A haven where we explore every facet of this wondrous instrument, delving deep into the minds and hearts of those whose energy breathes life into a simple piece of plumbing. Join us as we venture through time, tracing the trumpet's storied origins from its humble beginnings to its modern grandeur in orchestras, jazz clubs, recording studios, university halls, and beyond. Through insightful interviews and captivating anecdotes, We'll hear the wisdom and experiences of virtuosos, teachers, historians and enthusiasts alike. And now, let the symphony of trumpet dynamics commence with our founder and host, James D. Newcomb. Spice up your practice routine with original exercises and adaptations of all your favorite method books in 5-8 and 7-8 time. Odd Meter Technical Exercises for Trumpet by Michael Hengst. Oddmeter-exercises.com Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm glad that you're here, and I deeply appreciate you taking a little bit of time out of your very busy schedules to press play on this podcast and spend some time with us. I have a bit of an issue with my voice, as you might be able to tell, which is actually okay because this is all you're going to hear of me on today's episode we have a very special treat you may recall that a few weeks ago i played a couple of interviews with the great vinnie shashelsky a wonderful person and also an outstanding trumpet player in the nashville area he's been there for years and uh he he really acquitted himself well in the podcast so much so that i thought it would be interesting to see what would happen if i were to give him the reins for an interview on this podcast and who knows who knows what will come of it maybe Vinny will say I, I i like doing these interviews maybe i'll start a podcast of my own and maybe i'll hire that james newcomb guy to coach me and how to do it the right way who knows at any rate that is the angle that we took on today's episode i'm out walking my dog here on the boardwalk of virginia beach pleasant evening you can hear the waves crashing in the background so that is the setting for beginning today's episode so i honestly haven't even listened to the interview with uh vinnie and his friend mike haynes i'm about to listen to it while i do the show notes but i i don't even know what what they're going to say as i record this introduction to the podcast so i'm going to be listening right alongside you all i can't wait to hear what they have to say if it's anything like the performance that Vinny gave in his interviews with myself on the podcast, I'm sure it's going to be wonderful. So thank you again for listening, and I hand it on over to Vinny Shashelsky, interviewing his good friend Mike Haynes. Hey, y'all, Vinny Shashelsky here on the Trumpet Dynamics podcast. James and I had a great interview a couple weeks ago, and he thought it might be fun for us to do this. I am here today with my good friend, uh, great human being, incredible musician, beautiful trumpet player, father, partner, mastering engineer, and 
helped me with my last four or five real estate sales. So he's all over the map. Uh, Mr. Mike Haynes. Hi, Mike. Hi, Vinny. How are you, buddy? I'm good. I'm glad to be here. Good. I'm glad you're here, too. Oh, yeah. Mike's a good dude, as I have said and will say many times in this interview, but he's not, he hides his bushel very well. He's not a counter. I'm a counter. He's not a counter. I'm a, I, I, but if I could do the math, I would say Mike is probably responsible for well over 10,000 recordings since he's been in the studio. Mike, you're from around here originally. Where are you from? Yeah, I'm from Tullahoma, Tennessee, which is about an hour and a half south of Nashville. Yeah, and and you went to high school, Tullahoma High School. Yeah, great band program. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and 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 tell me about your influences down there, the band director and the people who influenced you. Uh, my dad was a trumpet player, which was really cool. He was worked on rockets. He worked on all the shuttle and all the Apollo shots and cruise missile and so forth. Earlier on, he was a trumpet player, a jazz trumpet player, very influenced by. Chet Baker, Dizzy Gillespie, real soft, smooth, swinging. Uh, he could still pick up the trumpet at any point and play, and it was just so in the pocket. I have to give my dad a lot of credit for early influences, owning Maynard Ferguson Records and Doc and Buddy Rich, and he'd buy big bands. We had a lot of music I listened to, so dad was a big influence. And then my band director in high school, who came to Tullahoma as the band director when I was in the eighth grade, really took the high school band, which had stalled, and took it into the new era, which was the drum corps style, bigger, brassier sound, and really encouraged me to play and heard me early on. Even when I was in the ninth grade, I was able to put out some sound and range and brought me to the high school, and I got to play with them. And that was really incredibly formative early on to be playing in a big band when I was 13 that was decent, and having the influence of actually Nashville players. He brought down some session players. Barry McDonald came down and gave us a clinic and talked about being a session trumpet player. Yeah, my high school band director put me on the 50-yard line and got me an all-state, and, and I and went from there. Yeah, it was really an extraordinary, really extraordinary high school experience. The band ended up winning contests by senior year. Jazz band won contest, marching jazz. It was covered a lot of ground. So I so supportive high school programs and uh, early education because it does make all the difference in the world. Very cool. And you and I have had talks uh, about the what they call the marching arts now. We just called it marching band back then. <laughs> right. It's an um, art. Yeah. It's it just, is. it gives, you know, you're with, I hate to use this term, but you're with like minded people. Everybody's trying to execute the same thing mm -hmm. at the same time. That all translates into later in your career when you're sitting in a section and you're all trying to play a short note on four. It's same kind of energy. So that's cool. And I actually know the truth about the marching band. When you were the soloist, you were surrounded by majorettes and flag girls. And that was really the... That was inspired. You've got to have motivation. That was really... As a young man to keep pressing that piece of metal against your face all the time. And we won't get into it, but you had a brief stint in the Drum and Bugle Corps, DCI. Yes, and that was between my, I left high school, and when I graduated the next day, I left for Blue Stars in March 1970, summer of 79, and placed finals, which was awesome. And that was, once again, between June 1st and August 1, or whenever the finals were, that changed my life. I think I was, what a short period of time with the right experience, but Drum Corps took what I'd already learned and elevated to a level 
of excellence and precision, like you're saying, that has lasted me and I have rarely encountered since I started. You went to Middle Tennessee State University? I did. I attended there a long time. (laughs) I didn't quite get my degree, but I spent a lot of time there. Good. I feel the same way about Towson, my alma mater. I went back there last year and it hadn't changed much, but uh, yeah, I think I was like 20 credits short of graduating. And I'm only two. Two credits short. It was my piano proficiency, which I I failed more than one time, but you can't learn to play piano in one night. That's not an impossible feat. I just made it impossible, but MTSU was cool. It's not like uh, preparing for a jury where you can shed for two days. No, I didn't know how to play the piano. So it was a bad, I just, it was a bad choice on my part, probably to be a music performance major. Have you, have you made any progress on the piano since then? No, just for fun. Nothing that would get me that degree, but they've asked me to come back and they say I can tinkle on the ivories and they'll probably give me one. So I wonder if you could fake like a, like an injury, a hand injury and say, I couldn't buy them off or something. No, I, I wanted to get it before my dad passed away because I thought it would be, he would find it humorous because they worried about me obviously early on because I got so close to the degree and then work picked up. The reason I didn't finish the degree really was because I was ultra busy quickly and I just, it, it just took me. And so I went to Nashville when I was 21. I'd already been commuting for four years from college and then moved and yeah. When you came into Nashville, and uh, a lot of people don't, a lot of people know now, but they didn't know back then, there's a prolific recording scene, and not just country. Tell us a little bit about how the old guys embraced you and and taught you and who you learned from when you first jumped in the studio. Yeah, because I, and I was so fortunate to be in the right place at the right time with the right set of skills. There were so many seasoned players in a group called the Nashville Jazz Machine, which was a group of session players who made a big band. Because the sessions at the time, in the 70s, if they're playing all these country sessions here in Nashville, they were very easy. And jingles were very easy. So pretty soon you lost any chops you had. You couldn't rely on just playing, which is a little different now. If you're playing all the time, music is quite demanding, pop music and things we cover. But back then it wasn't. So they felt the need to make a big band. And they wanted to. They're all great jazz players. So I had seen that. Uh, while I was in high school, once again, loving to my parents and kudos, they took me up three years, sophomore, junior, senior, and my brother, to go see the Jazz Machine play at what was called the Rite of Spring. It was a big jazz festival that used to go on here in Nashville, and they had headliners, Dexter Gordon and Maynard Ferguson, Stan Kent, and all those were various years' headliners. And we got to hear the Jazz Machine, and I told them I'm going to play in that band one day. I remember saying it to my dad, and my dad, as usual, patted me on the back said, that's <laughs> yeah, no, he was very supportive. He just didn't want to build me. And I got to MTSU in August, and by November I was playing in the jazz machine. And they just took me in. Once again, I golden rule, don't be an a-hole. And I followed that pretty much. Pretty uh, much. <laughs> I hope so. I'd have to get a second opinion probably on that. But yeah, I sat down at the end of the section for a year, and when I say section, it would be either the jazz machine or anything that was done in that, because we there'd be record dates started happening, and various kind of gigs, and sometimes that section from the jazz machine would be the trumpet section. And I sat on the end, and I played high note and fifth trumpet, because I, my reading chops were so poor that I really couldn't sit in the lead chair unless I had some time coming out of rote learning from high school. Quickly, I started, my sight reading started picking up. And through time, they showed me 
and I showed them that I could do it. They showed me what to do. And there was a lead player here named Ron Keller who had played with Liza Minnelli and Kenton and lived in New York, played a lot of sessions and moved down here. And when I got here, he was transitioning to the investment world. He ended up being my investment banker and he helped me out very much in heaven. Thank you, Ron. Um, but he pretty much handed it over to me, one might say, at least a segment of the work or a kind of the scene. Um, George Tidwell is one of the greatest influences on me, who we played together for 30 years. George, an amazing flugelhorn player, amazing copyist, arranger, friend, just an uh, amazing improviser, and showed me and taught me a lot about the studio. Uh, so in the, that's trumpet world, there were and there's other names as well, but those are some of the, the two older guys who really helped me. Chris McDonald, who's still around. Chris is a bit older than me, but Chris immediately took me as his player. Chris is a trombone player and a fabulous arranger and has yeah. been for 40-plus years now. Absolutely. So many records. And he heard in me, he came up to me on the marching field the during band camp my freshman year and said, do I want to be in a band? And I said, What's what kind of band? What's I just I didn't really know. And he said it's like Earth, Wind, and Fire. And I said okay, yes. And he said here's the book. And he gave me the book, and I was like, oh my god, because I didn't read once again. So I had this huge book to learn: Chicago, Earth, Wind, and Fire, all of the Algero, Algero of the time, Lionel Richie. Those were stuff. Then Michael Jackson, kind of the anyone of the pretty young thing or any of those hard horn tunes. Chris once again took me and got me in the pop world writing for him for me in that chris and i and mark dow that had been there mark came a little later as a saxophone player chris ushered in a new sound the new sound the jerry hay era starting in 1980 we paralleled jerry hay which was so much fun has been so much fun that was an amazing boost to my career to have a, an arranger who could not only teach me, but used me on the recordings. The guys in the jazz machine, it was another set of set of gigs and set of musical situations. And at the same time, orchestral recording, Christian orchestral recording was taking off as the inspirational gospel scene was launching. And it really started around 79 or 80. And quickly I was sitting in the one chair of the orchestra and I was, I was pretty young. I was 20. Like a 60-piece, right? Like a 60-piece orchestra. Yeah. And, and by 21, yeah, I was doing it all the time. Yeah. The the old school guys at the time, I guess we're the old school guys now. Exactly. I, I have seen the way that you, um, that you welcome new players into town. I feel like, at least these days, I'm much the same way. And if somebody calls me and says, hey, man, I want to move to Nashville, I always tell them, come on. There's plenty of work for great players. You're not going to take anything from anybody who is not willing to give it up and so on and so forth. Were the guys that started here in the 60s and 70s and then when you came in the 80s, were they gentle with their approach or did they say, hey, kid, play that note short or go home and read some clarinet solo? It would be more on the gentle end of the spectrum. I think much of that owed to you live in the South. And so there's this there's a little nicer thing. So I think that's an aspect of it. There was there were a few, as there's always a few, that teach you lessons of the hard way, <laughs> with a little more fire. You might say <laughs> right or wrong, it's still a lesson. And 
So I ran into a couple, both trumpet players, both older trumpet players, who we had to find our happy place. Ah, uh, okay. And I'm a get-along kind of guy. Yeah. And I think they felt... Threatened. Threatened, and maybe they projected an egoic kind of arrogant kid thing on me, which I can say I was not. It's just not my nature. With a little time, it all was made well. And we I worked with both of them later on, all good and all good. cool. But it was a little rough. But generally speaking, come back. It was a really, I have to say, it was a kind intro. Good. I did get fired on my very first session. Oh, nice. My very first full master Tell recording session. Tell us about it. That was one of those trumpet players. <laughs> I'll, let it, I'll leave his name out. It doesn't matter. He's passed long on. Great session. And Ron Keller, who I had mentioned, it was a jazz machine session. It was two sessions, two days of recording, big band. We were going to do some Kenton lifts of tunes. And one was, oh, I can't remember. It's, it's a real complicated intro. And it's a high descending thing. And it's, I don't know if it's chromatic or it's just modal, but we were in the studio and Ron said, hey man, play lead on this. And I said, I don't know, Ron. He goes, I'm not. So I tried it twice and I I just really just made a massacre of it both times. I said, he goes, oh, okay. Ron said, okay, I'll. So I moved back down. And then after that session, the, trump, that, the trumpet player said, I don't want to take that and all the guys later, the guys in the section came up to me and they said, It's not you, it's him. They gave me the or they yeah. you know covered me in support. I wasn't shattered. I don't, really don't remember being shattered, but it was like, damn, that's my first session. That didn't go so well. <laughs> <laughs> my first paying session. I'd done a couple before, my first paying session. But sometimes a bad dress rehearsal makes for a good performance. I, so. the same thing happened to me. My first session in Nashville was in January of nineteen ninety three. I remember because I had done the Christmas show at Opryland, and we spent all that money moving here. So I was so broke, I couldn't pay attention. And we were out at Bradley's Barn, which for those of you listening, was a big studio, and it was a full three trumpets, a couple trombones, French horns, strings, percussion. It was a, it was a small orchestra. It's probably 25. And we started playing. It was a TV theme song, and I thought, man, this is really mm -hmm. cool. <laughs> People told me I needed to wait at least a year to get my first session, and here, I've been here a couple of weeks and I got one. I started playing and it stopped and it was silent. And a saxophone player, who will remain nameless, Mr. Hat, <laughs> he said to me, he said, hey, Mr. Trumpet player. And I just sat there, just froze. And the, the guy next to me said, I think he's talking. <laughs> and he said, how are we going to tune with you with all that vibrato in your sound? And I was like, I had no idea. Big Maynard fan for a long time. And I just did. I spent the next year taking the vibrato out of my sound and being able to add it back in. So it's one of those things where you learn a huge lesson from those kind of things. Back up a little bit. When you were playing fifth, mm -hmm. and, and this is more of a kind of a trumpet geek thing, and so yeah. that's what this podcast is about mostly. So when you're sitting in the fifth chair, and then the lead player says, hey, man, on the, on the second half of that double chorus, I want you to take your, your part up two octaves, right. an octave above me. Um, tell, tell me about, did you ever get mushy from playing down low and then having to play high and then going back to playing down low? Was I have it ever? never suffered. That's good, man. That's... And that is a common, I know that's a common uh, issue. Yeah. The going back, if you, especially if you're swapping equipment or what. I've, and especially in that day, and I was always a Jet Tone Studio C. And I still, to this day, I play a, a Patrick Mouthpiece's copy of my Studio C, which has a, his changes to the throat. A lot of stuff like that. I don't. 
but it didn't it didn't mess with me and it it never did and i basically had a a lead part just a copy of the first trumpet part and i would play it down an octave at times and then play the up stuff and through all my years of recording in it at mtsu i got a bach five and it was just was that right i don't know they, everybody's they're, they're kicking me on the arm because it's 6b i'm sorry it's a 6b all my trumpet friends are saying dumb uh <laughs> and that was the mouthpiece that just was like oh it gave me the classical roundness or for doing that in a that kind of orchestra to play round tones solo-esque parts top of the staff up to c and then switch over to the studio c and for years and years i kept my setup in the studio was two horns we didn't do c trumpet back then uh, much at all so it would just be two B flats. It'd be my kind of a brighter B flat or a, not even brighter. It would be a commercial, what I call a commercial lead horn mm-hmm. with my jet tone in it. And I had a Blackburn bell on a Bach body that I started playing around 90. And before that, it'd be just another horn. But I played a big mouthpiece in that. So I had my big mouthpiece horn, my little mouthpiece horn. I've lived my life like that. And it really has served me in the long run. I think that's good. A, a lot of people are, there's a lot of differing opinions on changing mouthpieces and horns. I change a lot because <clears throat> here at the studio, which is where we're recording from, my overdub studio, I'm oftentimes stacking myself. And I've told this to bazillion people, and people are starting to listen and, and see the merit in it. If you play the, all four parts on the same horn with the same mouthpiece, and you have any unison stuff, you're going to run into that... I used to call it gospel phase because they loved it in the gospel <laughs> industry, but it's a phase yeah. shift. When you hear that, when it's the same guy playing the same note and it's in tune, it still happens. And so I change a lot. So ch- ch- the changing the mouthpiece thing is it's got some merit for some players. It mm-hmm. really does. So you started in the studio's early 80s, yeah? Okay. Yeah. First session, actually, I caught 79 by just by the tip. So the 70s. So I could say the 70s. Yeah. That's good. That was a good era for uh, horn players and string players. But it's with the eight, but it's yeah, it's with the disco stuff. Okay, then you you're living in Nashville. When did you feel the change? Did you ever feel the change, or when did you feel the change where you went from a live player to a studio player, and then not as much live and more studio stuff? Was that right away, or no? Actually, that was a bit of a oops, a bit of a journey. Being in the eighties. The sessions started pretty quick and started pretty regularly, along with the gigs. And we would, with some regularity, have tens, twos, and sixes, or tens, twos at least, and have gigs at night. On the weekends, we'd have a Friday and a Saturday. We would pull in long days. I kept my date books from back then because it's just so unbelievable. But but we were young. We're talking from age 20 to 30. It was 10 years of that. And then I started having problems. The chop problems for me, which is neuropathy from nerve, just pounding the nerve on the left side of my face. That's the long end, short end of the long story. Precipitated me stopping playing live. Okay. For all, in, for most intense, like I, I live gigs with bands for fun, so to speak, any kind of wedding or anything. I just stopped doing, I just went to the studio, which people thought was strange. I did it for survival. Yeah. Totally. I did some tours, like the Michael W. Smith tour we did around that time. That's I had, where I met you. Oh, that's right. Yep. Yeah. 
that was we just had a reunion we had a we all got together i think i saw a picture Last of that week, somewhere yeah nice we all got together with smitty and talked about that that was a, <laughs> it was a great thing there are some good stories from that oh, tour, some great which stories. we will not yeah. tell on this you know, podcast. It's a tour, we got to keep it clean. <laughs> no, it's good. No, we didn't do anything bad. Just fun. There's lots. There are lots of fun stories. <laughs> it, but yeah, I had done some recouping by that time and just controlling my life. The uh, silver lining thing cannot be stressed enough. That your life situation will lead to something. The worst things often lead to the best things. I've had that happen so many times. I cannot begin to tell you mm -hmm. a my chop problems you know my chop problems forced me to stop playing a lot of live gigs i really didn't want to play and focus on playing the studio where i could be more controlled and really do what i want to do more and i would not have stopped playing those gigs probably for a while so it forced me to do that it forced me to look at other opportunities in my life which led me to other avenues of business so so yeah by the time i was 30 I had stopped playing most gigs and was just playing sessions in. And so I guess the lesson for the trumpet players out there is <clears throat> Mike, and I've said this about Mike before, actually to his face, Mike jumped into a magic trumpet closet when he was when in at eight or nine and came out and could play the trumpet. Just could play it, could play the snot out, which is really cool. The producers in Nashville, when you first came on the scene, they were like, oh, that's good. We got another lead player. And, but then they realized that you had an extended upper range, uh, double C's plus, right? Mm -hmm. And cherry picking. Like if somebody mm -hmm. said, I want to, you know, I want a double C on the end of that. You just went, thank you very much. And, and everybody mm -hmm. moved on. Mm -hmm. And then they started writing crazy high stuff just because they knew you could do it. Mm -hmm. This, it's funny yeah. that you mentioned Jerry Hay. Jerry almost did this to, I don't know the story. And Jerry, if you listen, you can, you can let us all know. But Jerry had some issues too. But he was mostly writing for himself. So he was injuring himself. Yeah. The guy, if you listen to Rosanna, very, very faint in the mix, that lick is up an octave. Yeah. And just nailed. And I'm sure it was a, a one or two take affair. And that's before Pro Tools or any of the digital audio workstations where you could fly it so he did it at least three times on that song so they found out that you could play high and that you were willing to play high and i'm guessing there was a certain amount of if i don't do this yeah they might not call me or whatever well, and it's did. always what i'd always done i right. didn't know anything to do when you step into the not hero superman it's not that necessarily being a first trumpet player being the soloist feeling like you're carrying the ball you just got to come through. Yeah. And I think I, I'm not, it's, I'm a boy, I was a boy scout at heart for many years and the band and what you play in and being part of a group. And I just never lost that mentality of, yeah. I need to. Yeah. And it, I paid. Yeah. Well, that's not the only reason I paid prices. I paid prices because of bad habits. Yeah. <laughs> in my plan. Hey, I want to interrupt today's show to tell you about Odd Meter Technical Exercises for Trumpet by Trumpet Dynamics previous guest. Michael Hankst, professor of trumpet at Metropolitan State University in Denver. These exercises are for serious players looking to enhance their familiarity with 5.8 and 7.8 meters, strengthen and expand their range and endurance, stay engaged and focused while practicing, as well as those looking to play new exercises or even old exercises, such as ones by Clark, Stamp, Gecker, and Smith in a new way. When you practice the same thing the same way, without variation, it's easy to zone out or lose focus and just 
play on repeat without purpose. These exercises attempt to minimize that by constantly switching up the 5-8-7-8 groupings within each exercise, and I have used them and I can attest to their efficacy. Aspects of trumpet playing that are addressed in this book include articulation, multiple articulation, whole tone, major, dominant, and diminished arpeggios, intervolic precision, and scales. To grab your copy of Odd Meter Technical Exercises for Trumpet, just go to oddmeter-exercises.com. That's oddmeter-exercises.com. I think you're saying you were young and dumb. Young and dumb and, and lack dumb. of warming up or practicing. And, and that's part of the magic trumpet closet. I say that tongue in cheek. Yeah. Of course, none of us, none, I, I don't know, infrastructure, the way your oral cavity, the, the size of your head, honest mm. to God, the way you, and I've played with Mike many times. And if you can find some recordings that he's played on and listen to the, really the, and I say this with great reverence, the art of commercial articulation. Yeah. I've never sat next to any, I've never heard it on a recording. And I'm talking about from everybody. Something about the way that you articulate is really special. Mm. And believe me, I, for 30 years, I've been trying to grab a hold of it. And every time I ask Mike, I say, what is it? He's, I don't know. I just <laughs> stick it up there in tongue. It's a. It's not, I'm, I'm sure you could teach, but I'm not sure you'd be any good at yeah, it. Yeah, right. <laughs> Just sit there and stare ass at him. We know a couple really beautifully, naturally gifted players who are running into the same issues as you get older and as you abuse your chops. Mm. Because you you worked at the trumpet, but we know some people maybe sitting in this room that work at the trumpet a lot. Oh, my gosh. You know what I mean? And Vinny and, works at the trumpet hard, folks. <laughs> and it doesn't do any damn he's, good. He's the most practice conscious. <laughs> really, I think. I've never, I haven't quizzed anyone but you would be at the top of the list so. when you're a natural player and, and and i'm talking to the folks out there as well as mike who's sitting right across from me when you're a natural player what you have to be careful of i think is because everything comes to you and then when you experience a problem because you've never experienced one before that was the first time you'd ever had chop problems early right. 90s and it didn't just go it, it didn't it wasn't like gosh i feel tired blah 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 it was numb yeah. you couldn't tell where you were putting the mouthpiece you couldn't tell what was going to come out of the end of the horn. Accuracy went, range went, so on and so Muscle forth. Muscle went smooth. Yeah. Just smooth on yeah. the top side. I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't hold it on, but sure. Yeah. I'm still not exactly sure what happened. Some might say you snapped a muscle. Mm. I don't think that's what happened. It might have stretched it. There wasn't muscle. an event like you played a double C and, yeah, and you felt, there oh, there was. And I, and I had three events. Oh, okay. Uh, I had two events and one kind of protracted, but they, I remember the tunes and when they were happening. So maybe it was an overdriving and a stretching of the muscle and in, included the nerve because it was, it still is about 75 to a hundred left. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it's happened several, since the early nineties it's happened. And that's when I came into town, 92. Yeah. Of course, when I came into town, and this is another thing for the younger players, when you go into a if it's Nashville or New York or Chicago or anywhere you move, it doesn't really matter. It could be Norfolk, Virginia. Find out who the cats are. Find out who the guys are. And then go hear them. And then make sure you have your trumpet in your car. Because you might show up at the Nashville Jazz Orchestra or the String Machine. Uh, we have a friend, Mike Castile, who's a really gifted musician, but has made his living in the copy business, really, mm -hmm. copy and orchestration. And He's gone on to Broadway and really created a comfortable situation for himself. But he told me 
when he would deliver charts in the 90s, this is before you could email them and have somebody print them. He would print them and tape them. They'd work all night, he and his wife, and it would be meticulously, absolutely perfect. The guy's just that guy. But he'd always have his horn in the car, and he said mm-hmm. one day, was that Big Boy mm-hmm. down there? What was the yeah. name of that studio? Uh, um, uh, oh, shoot. Oh, uh, yeah. Anyway, they had, a, they had a Bob's Big Boy statue in this big room, and one of the trumpet players got sick and didn't show up. And so what are we going to do? And Mike was sitting over in the corner and kicking at the dirt and said, shucks, guys, I might have my horn in the car. And boom, <laughs> there it was. So there's a great lesson to be learned there. But but Mike, you have you have fallen into that and come back out of it several times in the last 30 years, yes? Yeah, the early 90s. And then I, because I really clamped down on the live playing and controlling situation, which I saved myself by controlling the situation because a lot of times when I play live, I can't control myself. <laughs> you go too far, you get too, you really do. And you can't stop in the middle of the team like you can in the studio. 2007, I'd been, I once again had been out on the road with Vince Gill for two years and we dovetailed into a tour a day, one day with Larry Carlton in Thailand. So we finished the tour got on a plane we had to have somebody rush us the sound check after oh the long flight you're tired now oh, yeah i was so that is part of it i really was overdriven from the tour i had been on which was fantastic if you can find the these days been skilled tour it was just oh it was it was magical i saw it at the rhyme and you you got me tickets i've never forgotten what you said about it. oh my what did i say you said that it sounded like a record or you said that it sounded so accurate and so tight. Oh, it was incredible. It was a four-piece section and a huge band. It was like 900 people it was on stage. a lot stage. of people. And it was magical. Lloyd Berry did the charts Lloyd on that? Lloyd did the charts, yeah. Lloyd, the godfather of, of gospel horns and strings. And that's right. In yeah, from band. 80s, 90s, early 2000s. He's still working and still doing records. He's spitting it out at home on his little system at yeah. home and, and doing great. I see him on live stuff every once in a while. He's, mm. Yeah, he's doing, great. Really, doing really well. Yeah, and so it was that we just I just got a little burned and then... Went to the Larry gig and I'm and it just melted down. My, I we had a sound check and I could just feel them. everything went numb. It just went. I could barely. I thought I could barely play. It actually sounds fine. There was nothing high to play. The gig was more pockety. I had some solos to play, things like that. And then after that, I really took about a year off and didn't play for almost a year. Wow. Yeah, it was it was ten months, and I had really it's you, over, you didn't touch a trumpet. At I all. touched trumpet for ten months. Overuse syndrome really is what this is. And okay. this, and for anybody out there, if anybody ever wanted to reach out to me, I can give you my experience. And some of it you can come back. This was not uh, focal dystonia, but just overuse syndrome. I, and when I stopped, it just felt so... It, the problem with overuse syndrome is you always feel tired and you feel like you have to mm. Welcome to your trumpet hell. <laughs> so, so I just stopped. And after 10 months, I picked up the horn. It felt exactly the same. Didn't feel any better. Didn't feel any worse. It was like, welcome to your hell again. It's exactly like it was. Holy crap. That said, over the next six to seven years, I kept playing. I just moved down the road, which was fine. I moved down a third, and everybody else moved up, and I was able to keep playing and play fine in that register. It got better, and after about seven to eight years, and I wasn't counting, it got better. You're not a counter. I'm not a counter. That's right. It's exactly right. It's letting it happen. Where are we? What bar are we on? Where are, what's the count? That's just the being a lead player. Really. <laughs> Give me the count. It just, I started to notice that I was taking gigs I hadn't taken before. And I told my wife, I said, and my wife, bless my heart, Gina, she's the love of my life. Amazing person. Such Incredible. a support. Um, yeah. She'd heard me say, oh my God, 
chops feel so weird. And 18 kajillion times. And I was finally able to say, I think my chops are better. And she looks at me like, what? I said, I'm taking gigs. And it slowly has gotten better. And I've returned to a place where I can play first and play lead and do, I don't play double C anymore, but I play up to F and I play F sharp. I've dude. heard you play a nice fat G just yeah, sitting around and, and you were like, Hey, check this well, out. This I, I think something's happening think here. Happen. Yeah. It's a it's an interesting seasons of a career. And I'm man, I have really had some varying seasons. And now I feel like I'm moving into this season, like you're talking about, you know, of, of playing. It's a full time I can have control over what I want to do. I can be more involved in the things I want to. I can give my time and energy to younger players and talk and support them and coming forth. It's just really I'm so so grateful. I know so many players who really did hang. And some of them, some, they, we're all doing the best we can. And, and I would say that maybe some of them stopped. And I only say that because I wanted to stop a million times. Mm. But I just, and I'm not, it's not wildly disciplined. It's just my way. Don't misunderstand. I just kept getting up, trumpet in my face. It's just to say, if it's bad, it can get are you doing a little bit more of a comprehensive, short and sweet work warm up? Yes, more of. That's okay. a good way of putting. It. No, I really am. I really do have to practice, and I've really found finally some joy in the practice process. This was a guy that drove up to sessions, possibly two or three minutes late, maybe two minutes before. Two minutes before, with driving with his elbows playing his trumpet as he came into the parking lot. I heard that story from a lot of different people. Got to warm up. Yeah. Got <laughs> Sessions got to start. Stuff, you got important stuff to do, man. I had a, I mean, I had a flat on the interstate one time in the 80s before cell phones or anything. It's like they knew I, I was really down to the wire. It was bad. I'm not like that. But I was really, there would be everybody be in their seat, and I'd walk in, sit down, put my horn together, and the conductor would raise his arm. And I had a flat, and so I finally got changed, and I got to the session, so I just took the flat in with me. Oh, the session, <laughs> And I rolled it across the floor, oh. back from the door. Everybody's looking at me and looking what, and I rolled it back to the brass corner, and I said, I'm just going to get a flat. Oh, nice. And they were like, you're still late. But yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. I guess you covered up with some hoops. That's right good. That's good. <laughs> now, I, I will attest to, for the length of time I've known you, you have, and, and it's part of the reason why I asked you about that, mm -hmm. and, and I think this is important. I think this is important in life, and you and I agree on this. So if you go to somebody and you say, Mike, you're going to give me a heart attack. You, you're right. showing up two Shut minutes, up, two, two minutes yeah. ahead of time. I don't know if anybody ever did. That doesn't really matter. Fact of the matter is that over the years, you have made it more of a priority to be there. And when I really noticed it was we were doing something. might have been one of the APC sessions. It was at, it was at a studio that... A lot of them Merit? around here have it. Is it the Merit? The old Merits? Maybe. Yeah. And I showed up, and I'm habitually early. I showed up early, and you were sitting in your seat. And I thought to myself, all right, hell has frozen over first. And secondly, Mike is really making an effort to, to be conscientious about this. I know Everybody always says, show up on time. Keep your head low. Be a good. All that stuff is true. All that stuff, and could not be more true than with Mike, because... People love playing music with Mike. And as Mike has, because of the chop situation, has had to move down this section, he still brings just as much, if not more, music to anything he's working on from the third chair than he did 
from the lead chair because it's just, it's what's the word? I'm like pervasive. It's just so strong. Who we know? are. Yeah. Whatever line you were in when God was giving that out, you were at the front <laughs> of the line. So that's super cool. It's fascinating. We could talk about the studio scene forever and how much it's changed and, and yeah. how much it's the same and all that kind of stuff with the advent of home recording. Mm -hmm. But I guess the lesson from the last section of this would be just because you have it doesn't mean that you have to use, use it. it. Yeah. That's exactly and, right. And in an effort to serve the music, which we were talking about before this even started, the podcast even started, serve the music, make sure that, because in, in 1989, if somebody had written the last two choruses up an octave and Mike was the person he is today, I'm guessing what you would have done is say, I think there's room for some of this, mm -hmm. but I don't think we need all of it just because we can. So, because high notes, they're fun. Mm -hmm. But a modicum of, even Maynard played in the lower register, mm -hmm. but a modicum of them, it, it adds that shimmer and that excitement to music. But it's like somebody who yells at their kids all the time. When you yell at your kids all the time, they just roll their eyes back in their head and they go to their happy place. Right. That's the same way with high notes. So if you're a younger player or even an established player, you, you don't have to do it all the time. A nice, big, fat high note on the end with a kiss off that holds over just a little bit. Okay. Yeah, you have I'm okay. Because that's it's what players. we do. You know? kind of, so, so that's pretty cool. So, <clears throat> Mike, you have had, in the time that I've known you, and I think your whole life, <clears throat> have been very aware spiritually. Hmm. And I think, I'm not sure whether it's a chicken or an egg thing. In an effort to make sure that everybody's being loving and gentle and kind with their... Because sometimes you have to criticize. If you're sitting in a section and the fourth trumpet player, who's playing two octaves below you, let's call it the easy part... Mm. keeps playing the long note on four and you want it short and you're playing a high Q flat, there's a really kind and gentle way to tell him the first three or four times. Yeah. And then you channel your inner Vinny and say, if you don't play that note short, <laughs> I'm going to kick your arse. But tell us just a little bit about what sort of led you down the path that you've taken and how you think it has affected your career and your ability to communicate in the studio and live situation. Spiritual. Yeah. Having grown up Methodist in the South, and it was a great church in Tulum, such a solid foundation. I was in, so involved with the social aspect of the church and in the choir from an early age and in the choir through high school. Coming back to trumpet, because I am a big proponent of seeing the trumpet as singing. I always have. We're singing through our horn, you say that. And it's really letting go, doing your work until you're good, at, until you're ready to let go of the physical part of it so you can just sing. And I think getting to sing as I did for so many years early in life was of such, in, in such a positive environment, a nurturing environment, was so affirming to the musical part of myself and it just helped it really grow. Uh, and I've, you know, chicken egg thing. I've always been, uh, yeah, I've always been a inquisitive spiritual person from an early age. So it's just my nature. Um, and I got to college and life and expanded thinking and studying. And probably when I was around 30, around the same time I was having so many problems wondering if, 
I would ever play the trumpet again. Sitting on the side of the bed, I can remember that just head in my hands, thinking, am I ever going to be able to play? And I had a book I'd been given to me called Way of the Peaceful Warrior, which is, it's a work of fiction, but it highlights a lot of wonderful qualities, many of them attributed to the Zen Buddhism. And man, I read that book, which was given to me at this time. A friend of mine said, here, this is a really cool book you may dig, and it may be of help. I still have that copy. And man, it showed me in my pain and in my suffering how to be or how to get, I won't even say get through it, but I do mean that. How to be with it is a better way. And I spent a week by myself in a cabin in Maine and I read that book. And at the end of that week, I believed I could get out of this and be okay. And that's a, such a piece of teaching learning and understanding for any of us to be able to have because we will face so many situations and to feel that you can make your way through it. So I was taken to, by many Buddhist tenets, thoughts, way, path, and I started studying Buddhism around that time. And in 2002, I took the precepts and became formally Zen, which is a lovely, open, accepting path, presence, mostly. And in work, we're musicians trying to make a living, trying to make art with bills. There's a lot of things that can make players scared, nervous, insecure, angry. There's so much there that it is a it's a constant opportunity to let go and to be with and to not grab onto all of the varying emotions that can fly around in the studio, and I'll pick this since we're talking about the studio, it can be anywhere, um, but to what it's like to, as we say, take the one seat, where you're able to be settled and see everything without reacting or uh, taking part in it. And that sounds a bit clinical, but it's just a way of framing. And as you get older, sometimes it naturally happens. How that translates into everything in life is being able to, in situations where everything is coming unglued, which sometimes musically that happens a lot. And you've got producers coming unglued, you've got players, you've got emotions, you've got egos. Often it's, it could be boring, don't misunderstand me on a session, but it can be enlivened like that. And all it takes is one something, maybe a player's having a bad day, maybe they're going through a divorce, but to be that person in any situation that can be stillness, because when you're still, you transmit that. Other people see that. They feel that. They feel that steadiness, that clearness, that calmness in the face of something really bad just happened. Okay? Let's see what it is. This ability to be with and help people walk through whatever it is they're going through in this life. And on a session, it's helping people get to the end. So that it's a bit of a rambling way of saying. I, I don't think, so, man. I think there was a lot of good, a lot of good stuff yeah. in there. <clears throat> and you know, you can choose which spiritual <clears throat> you'd like to take. Believe what you want to believe, and love who you want to love. And we're fully supportive of all of that. Yeah, absolutely. But taking those qualities that you've learned from life and studying and being present and quiet and being comfortable 
with yourself when you're quiet. People who are type A and overachievers, when they meditate, they have to meditate for five minutes because on minute six, they've got something else they got to do. They got to make a plan and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. But, and these things don't come overnight. They don't come overnight. It's a practice. It's a practice. And and yeah, that's why they call it. Just like the trumpet. Yeah. If you pick something up new on the trumpet, when I add something to my routine, oftentimes the first time I play it, I'm very disappointed with myself. (laughs) But I do realize that in six months, I'm going to be playing that at a high level because I will have done it a thousand times. And then a year after that, I won't even be really thinking about what I'm doing. Clark studies or lip slurs or what tonguing exercises, whatever it is, you know what I mean? And there's something to be said for like with time. So everybody knows this, but somebody out there might not. So you come upon a piece, whether it's a commercial piece, a jazz piece or Petrushka, and you slow it and you put it on a metronome. So let's say you need it to be at 90 beats a minute and you have six weeks. Started at 60 very manageable at 60 and then tomorrow just bump it to 61 this is where patience which a lot of us as trumpet players don't weren't really we were not in that line at all when god was giving out patience bump it to 61 which your body won't be able to recognize really and then every day bump it one metronome Mm. marking and so in four weeks you're going to be playing it at tempo and then you'll be playing it for two weeks at tempo before you need to audition or perform. Or work. If you have that kind of time. If you practice. And you can do that on a, in, in a mini version of that, too. If you've got a couple of days, you, do, you just bump it up a little bit more. But those things and being present and having peace about what's going on. And that's really key in those because you're not making big you're never making huge giant strides on the trumpet you make very small strides on the trumpet and i think that your decisions and the path that you've chosen have helped with that even though you did jump into the magic trumpet club (laughs) right so um my buddy uh john snell um out of Bob Reeves Brass asked this. We're going to wrap it up, if that's okay. Yeah. Although, based on our history, we could sit here and talk for do it again for a long. Talk about trumpet more. Long, long, yeah, that's <laughs> fine. Now we need to talk about trumpet. We did talk about a lot of trumpet. You know, it's just things like just to digress a little. Like the thing that's fascinating to me is that when you walked in the studio for the first time, <clears throat> and you sat down in your chair, and there's these things, whether it was the paid or the free, there's these things in front of you. First time I ever did it, I was in college. And I remember the headphone. What do I do with the headphones? How do I set the level? Do I keep an ear off? Which side is supposed to go on which side? How do I keep the cord from getting tangled in my trumpet? Where do I put it when I'm not using it? Should I unplug it? Should I turn it down? What? There's like a hundred things about headphones that you need to know. Then you multiply that by everything. Like the, the one thing that I always say, like when you walk into the studio, you should already know which side of the stand that you play on. Do you, as right. a trumpet player, do you is your bell to the left of the stand and you read to the right, or is it to the right of the stand and you read to the left? Because if your microphone's on the left and you read from the other side, you're not going to get picked up. Your signal's not going to get picked up, and your little tracks are not going to be beautiful where they're supposed to be. So it's interesting, and it feels like the guys that, 
grabbed a hold of you, were able to tell you those things. We could go through all the technical aspects, what to do in the studio or what to do on a live gig. Do you want to play with a shield? Right. Some people hate shields. Yeah. I like it because it's bright. It's like a brain dart and I don't have to play as loud <laughs> and it just you know, lends itself. To, some people don't just don't care right. for them. So it's really interesting. So John, back to John Snell, who has a podcast called The Other Side of the Bell. He's a sweet man and really good at his job and really good at running a podcast. He asks a question. I'm not going to ask you about gear because, you know, what works for you. Although yeah. I do have... That mm -hmm. mouthpiece, and I use that on a regular basis, the 85. Yeah, the Patrick 85. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I do have that. And when I don't have to play super high, I love that mouthpiece. It's a big, fat sound and great flexibility. Yeah. The, the articulation is, is where it needs to be and all that stuff. So I won't ask you about gear. But <clears throat> if you could go back to your high school self, okay, mm -hmm. this is a little bit different than John poses. You could go back to your high school self when you were a senior. What is the piece of advice that you would give yourself? Mm, on any level? About anything. It doesn't have to be about trumpet or music or any of that kind of stuff. I'll make a dirty joke, but I'll leave that out. <laughs> I could edit it. Yeah. Man. And the one thing that always comes to mind is if I, say, if I told myself something, then I might change it, and then I wouldn't know my why. Mm -hmm. Because I love I do mm -hmm. But anyway, that said, trumpet, in the world of trumpet, it would have been trying to communicate relaxing more when I was playing because I played with so much pressure in drum corps and earlier on we lacerated our faces and if I could have which I don't do that any longer obviously we blow it away from our face it's you do everything you can to keep it off your chops while still playing so it's this constant tug of you're obviously you're wanting to pull it into your face so you have to bring the horn to meet your face but there's this sense of bringing it away from your face all the time. And when you do that, blowing it all forward, you give yourself, I find I have more endurance, sound. It's easier. It's the death knell to start coming into your chops. And we're talking microscopic differences, but that sense, I would have tried to communicate living and playing with more ease overall. Yeah. That's good. I yeah. think that's uh, I think that's some great advice. What's well, been wonderful having you here. I wish yeah. uh, again. I wish we could do five or six of these in a row. We could really get into some good stuff. But uh, so be kind and gentle, and uh, serve the music. So the music is always first. Yep, always first. Always above everything else. Yeah. Really, if you do if you take care of the music, you'll be taken. And uh, my friend Chris Gordon down in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. He's a trumpet player. He's a freaky trumpet player. Really good. He's not on the horn a bunch. He taught for a bunch mm. of years. He's retired. He's producing now and is having some success because of the way that he communicates. He's very Zen too also. And he does this little whistle thing where he plays like triple notes oh, wow. audibly and with control. He, I was on a session down there some years ago with um, the University of Alabama alumni the lead player that played um, some health problems, so they caught me. And one of the trumpet players who I work for a lot, he and I have since, we worked together a bunch, but I've apologized to him because he, he his name is Mart Avant, and he books the Tuscaloosa Horns for Tops and the Temptations and 
a bunch of different OJs. He's mm. got a cool gig. They've been yeah. doing it for 30 or 40 years. They're called the Tuscaloosa Horns. We're playing the fight song for Alabama, but it's a swing version. It's like lightning. And I, we played it through. We sight read it. I didn't have any of the music ahead of time. Sight read it. And, and it sounded really good in rehearsal. And Mart looked at me and said, back when I was in the band, the way we used to do this. And I said, stop what you're doing. Because I was hired for a reason. And I'd like to get through it a couple times and then we can, we can talk about it. But it created some negative energy. Mm-hmm. And Chris pulled me off to the side and said, man, I believe that you can hear joy or anger. And man, it, it really changed the way that mm-hmm. I did business. It's really incredible. And it's true. Mm-hmm. I had somebody the highest compliment I've ever gotten in my whole life about my playing. Very heartfelt conversation, and he said to me, because I put these little blue screens up on on uh, Facebook and mm. interwebs, and they're just like 15-second clips of stuff I've been doing here in the studio, and it's usually higher, faster, louder, and it's a lot of fun for a very small segment mm. of the population. But he said, I can hear the joy coming out of your horn on mm. those recordings. And so I turned the corner after that. That was a big deal for me. And Mark, Mark and I kissed the mate up and everything is cool. Yeah. But at the same time, you just, you need to remember that you're there. You're not there. It's great to socialize. It's great to hang. It's great to have the work. It's great to have the money. The most important thing when you're in that studio is making that music a little bit better by adding what you can. Yeah. And I think you've done that for every session you've ever done and uh, I really appreciate it. something to definitely something for me to aspire to both musically and as a person mm. and so I'm glad you're my friend Same and, here. and I really appreciate you doing this we'll get Mike's not on social media a bunch I do some Facebook yeah, yeah. a little bit of Facebook I might do Instagram some but yeah you're so old I, I know how'd that happen <laughs> It's so weird. Uh, what what we'll do is we'll put up a we'll put up Mike's <laughs> Facebook link, and, and if you want to talk to him further, just send him a DM. You know what a DM is? Uh, a you can do it. Come on, uh, direct message. Direct message. Very good. Very good. <laughs> and he'll he'll get to that, and <clears throat> when he gets to it, and then you can hang out with him and and pull some of this love off of yeah. him too. Thanks you all for being here, and I hope uh, somebody got something out of it. I know I did. Thanks and for having me. Ben. We'll see you next time, Mike. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. For more captivating episodes and exclusive content, visit our official website at trumpetdynamics.com. You can dive deeper into the interviews, discover additional resources, and connect with your fellow trumpeters. Also be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and even leave a rating and review. It really helps with the visibility of the show. Until we meet again, may your fingers be fluid, your breath unimpeded, and your chops ever fresh. Play hard, 